0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And my name is Julie Douglas.
1: And uh, we just recorded an episode about some of the big stories uh, in science uh, during the last year, during 2012. Uh, And now we're doing a second episode where we're just going to run through some bits of really fascinating science that you might have missed. A lot of it's stuff that we could conceivably maybe have done an episode about, or maybe it's like something that's really interesting, but it's not quite enough to do a whole episode on. So uh, consider this kind of a sampler platter of some of the stranger chocolates from 2012.
0: Mm. Now I get to say a poo-poo platter.
1: Yes, a poo-poo platter. Of sorts. Of, of odd science from 2012. Um, we're going to kick off with with my favorite from this, uh, this bunch. And this is, of course, the Immortal jellyfish, the "quote unquote" Benjamin Button of the animal kingdom. <laughs> uh, a lot of headlines had some fun with this. I mean, half the fun with most of these are the, the head, headlines. Uh, New York Times ran a story titled "Can a jellyfish unlock the secrets of immortality?" So you have a number of. Uh, I mean, just the, the that's possibility. a weighty title right yeah. there. Yeah, they, they dropped immortality in the headline, which that's gonna that, that generates some interest because we all want to live, if not forever, at least maybe a little. More than we have allotted to us, so, uh, it's, it's instantly fascinating. So, the, uh, the jellyfish in question is the Turritopsis dorni, uh, which, to all appearances, looks like a jellyfish. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing particularly, uh, amazing about it, but what, what happens here is that, um, a there's nothing amazing about it in just appearance, but in function, it, it does some amazing things. What appears to happen is that it, uh, quote unquote, reverses in, in age until it reaches an early stage, earlier stage of its development. Now, to really understand what's going on here, you have to, to picture the life cycle of the jellyfish. And, uh, so what happens is, alright, so you have an, an adult jellyfish, a medusa, alright? When it reproduces, it drops off this, uh, planula larva, alright? This larva, uh, floats down to the bottom of uh, of the sea there, and there it grows into a polyp. And then the budding polyp emits this ephira, this mm-hmm. little uh, sort of uh, mini pseudo jellyfish that then floats up and becomes the adult jellyfish. It's kind or, of
0: the goo of it, right?
1: Right. So that's the basic life cycle. Now, what happens normally is that you have an adult jellyfish that reproduces a few times, starts getting a little old, it starts to starve or the water gets a little too hot, and then it dies. It shuffles off this mortal coil. You know, this is basically like any life form, right? Mm-hmm. Reaches the adult stage. The adult stage is about reproducing. Now, it's worth noting that, uh, as with many other organisms, um, the adult stage is not the only stage that it can reproduce. Uh, there's also some uh, asexual reproduction that takes place at the polyp stage. But uh, but generally, in most uh, organisms, you re- it reaches the adult stage, it reproduces, and then it either dies immediately, or maybe it carries on a little longer, but Generally, its function is done. You've reached the adulthood stage, you've reproduced, that's it. You have to get off the stage and make room for the other players. But, not so with this particular jellyfish. Now, it does not quite Benjamin Button. Like, that would mm-hmm. be a wrong analogy. Uh, what would be a better analogy is, that, is not that, like, an old man grows young again, but imagine an old man walking down the street and just collapses under the, the weight of his, like, old awfulness and then just melts into a pile of goo on the sidewalk. And then out of that goo crawls uh, a naked, slime-covered infant, which then grows up into an adult.
0: I like that. I like that. Pat Krug, a marine biologist, says that when they do reach the end of the cycle, uh, they get really stressed out, and they collapse to the bottom and melt. Yes. But instead of dying, they reorganize its tissues and forms a new little polyp. So as you say, sort of reclining from the primordial goo and reforming itself. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting because Krug says that it's it's, uh, almost like it skips its having the sex part of Mm -hmm. it and goes straight to the next bit in the life cycle and becomes this new polyp. And I think this is so cool because it reminds me of the imaginal cells that we talked about in the Gremlins podcast. We were talking about a butterfly sort of deconstructing, or rather a caterpillar deconstructing itself in the cocoon, and that those imaginal cells are much like undifferentiated stem cells, and that they can do any sort of job that they need to while reconstructing this new form, new life form, this butterfly. Um, and then those cells becoming specialized when it when it actually does become the butterfly itself, this is very much the same thing with this immortal jellyfish.
1: Yeah, to put it in the, the gremlin model, now that we've brought gremlins and magwai into it, uh, the magwai, the furry little dude, the gremlin, the repulsive creature that the magwai turns into, the gremlin is the adult form, the magwai is the juvenile form, um, maybe even a larval form, however you want to look at it, um, and so, uh, you know, the uh, the eats after midnight turns into an adult gremlin. But then imagine if the adult gremlin melted, and then out of the the gremlin melt <laughs> emerged uh, a Magui. You know, it would be a a reversal. You know, so uh, it's fascinating to think about it that way. But but still, taking nothing away from this organism, like I say, it's not quite Benjamin Button, and it's uh, which is I think a good thing. Uh, it's also not quite immortal. We're getting a little carried away with that.
0: Right. There's a question mark to, to what degree the tissues can continue to regenerate themselves. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really awesome. It's really fascinating. And certainly, um, something very unique is going on. Well, that's also another thing because there's also the possibility there are other jellyfish species that do this as well. So Mm -hmm. it's maybe not as unique as some of the stories made it out to be, but it's still pretty amazing. Uh, and ultimately, yeah. How long can this keep going? Uh, Probably not forever. This is probably not a situation where it's like the Highlander of jellyfish just carrying on and carrying on.
0: Yeah, and let me just uh, do a quick quote from Pat Krug, again, the marine biologist, um, why it is significant. He or She says that learning how to take adult cells and get them back to the early stage where they can develop into anything is a significant goal of what we want to be able to achieve. Um, and I think in this case she's talking about in humans. It's something that this humble little jelly has a built-in feature of its life cycle. Things get gross around it. It melts and rebuilds itself from scratch. So I think there is definitely the potential that we could learn some basic things that we could better apply to our own technology for human medicine. Now, you know, it would be a dream is to talk to Aubrey de Grey about this. Yeah. You know, and say like, what you know, to what extent are things like this, these sort of discoveries, um, helpful? In, in his own biogerontology work where he is trying to get to disease uh, before it happens in the human body and basically try to keep the body as finely tuned as possible so that uh, with drug intervention and good health, we could possibly live, you know, upwards to 500 years mm-hmm. old.
1: Yeah, I guess one of the things about humans is we don't really, uh, we, we never go through a cocoon phase. We never go through a drastic of change i mean we, we you know where there's there are a lot of drastic changes that go that occur between uh you know being an infant and being an adult but but uh like what would be the cutoff line you know if you could yeah turn what's back the clock and to what degree could you
0: reorg your yeah. your cells and your tissues um so i think that's the interesting part like could we take that information uh and, and apply it to ourselves practically
1: yeah yeah i mean well it makes me think of uh the fly uh because in, in the there's fly- a lot of
0: primordial goo in that.
1: Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that uh, Jeff Goldblum's uh, character gets on about when he's you know quote unquote gold-blooming about the uh, <laughs> the excitement of the the science and he's talking about you know being broken down uh, in the teleportation and then reassembled, reborn, reemerging from the plasma pool and that's pretty much what's happening with this jellyfish.
0: Which, I don't know. I mean, if you can combine that with um, quantum entanglement,
1: yeah, which we'll, which we'll talk about, uh, mm-hmm.
0: maybe that could happen. But before we get to that, let's talk about junk DNA. Or, as we have discovered this year, not-so-junk DNA.
1: Yeah, so this is pretty cool. And this is a, just another example of, you know, as, as, as we any scientific endeavor, you, you push a little little farther, you, you answer one question and three new ones arise. Mm-hmm. Um, just as when, you know, you're you're traveling across the countryside. Uh, what seems to be a, a very simple ar- array of hills and trees in the distance. The closer you get, you see the details. You see the, the how how complex the system actually is. And so, for the longest, we've we've thought that there is this thing called this junk DNA, which you know sounds kind of like a silly idea because why is it there? Right? Is there's the, the the uh, you know the quote you may have seen on a t-shirt god don't make no junk right so why would god I've <laughs> never seen <laughs> that see? cuz the idea that, that god in his uh, his or her infinite wisdom would not make something that was that was wasted like mm-hmm. everything has a purpose something everything kind of fits in somehow and um, you take the god out of that equation and fit it into a more scientific uh, setting then it, it still rings with a certain amount of truth. Like mm-hmm. it's there. Like why would why would there be junk DNA? Like would it just be like leftover garbage DNA? And uh, anyway, the, the, the take home here is that the more that we've 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 looked at junk DNA, we've realized that it is not junk DNA, but it is a genetic material that informs um, these various epigenetic changes uh, in the genes that determine what genes are turned on or off. And these switches, um, with a simplified way of, of looking at it, these switches. Uh, uh, have an impact on various um, manifestations in the human body, from various traits to uh, diseases.
0: Yeah, and um, this is a byproduct of mapping the human genome, this discovery that junk DNA is not necessarily junk DNA. In fact, mm-hmm. 80% of it, they say, is vital. And as you say, it, it has um, it has a pretty big implication in gene switches that reside in bits of DNA. So... Um, The discovery is considered a major medical and scientific breakthrough, and it really does have an effect uh, on our ability to game human health here. Um, And again, we're talking about um, this material that was largely mysterious before this, and in some ways it is, but there's an ability now to to better uh, look at it and try to figure out what it is. In fact... The term "junk DNA" is not being tossed around so much anymore. It has now been upgraded to dark matter.
1: Yes, something that, and just a, briefly about dark matter uh, in a cosmic sense, a mystery, a thing that uh, that we're we're not sure exactly on the nature of, but we know it it must be important because there's a lot of it out there.
0: Yeah, and um, you know there are complex de- diseases that appear, and they uh, appear to be caused by tiny changes in hundreds of gene switches, which are controlled by this junk or dark matter DNA. Um, It really is a game changer because it can help us to understand how alterations in the non-gene parts of DNA contribute to human disease, which could lead to new drug therapy. Um, It could also explain how the environment can affect disease risk. So in the case of identical twins, small changes in the environmental exposure can slightly alter gene switches, with the result that one twin gets diseased and the other does not. Um, and I think this is really going to be most important, at least in the short term, in, in cancer. Um, in fact, this is from a New York Times article, Bits of Mystery DNA, Far From Junk, Play Crucial Role. It says that as they begin determining the DNA sequences of cancer cells, researchers realize that Most of the thousands of DNA changes in cancer cells were not in genes. They were in the dark matter. The challenge is to figure out which of those changes are driving the cancer's growth.
1: All right, so there you go. Junk DNA, not so junk after all. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back we're going to roll through some other um, potentially overlooked uh, awesome science from, from 2012, including solar tornadoes.
0: Okay, we're back and we are talking solar tornadoes, which I'm really excited about because uh, this year they were confirmed. They've been spotted or or hints of them have been spotted in 2008, but they were confirmed this year. And it's thought that up to 11,000 of them twist over the sun's surface every day. And they're made of hot plasma, and they are capable of reaching heights of 1,800 miles high with diameters ranging from 930 to 3,500 miles wide. Okay, so the, the stats aren't done there, because think about this mammoth. Um, it can spin upwards to about 9,000 miles an hour, lasting only for about uh, 13 minutes each.
1: Yeah, and as uh, a lot of the the uh, the news stories about this uh, really like to, to focus on these things can be as big as the United States. Yeah, they're they're enormous solar tornadoes, um, and it, it's important to know. I I get a lot of uh, space related headlines thrown at me because uh, I sometimes write for Discovery Space. So anytime Discovery Space does a story, I end up seeing the headline, and it's easy to become kind of dull to these after a while because. You have a, something happen in space, some new discovery. You know, it's the nature of, of science journalism. You have to spice it up a bit. Um, you know, black holes, that's great. But no, it's not enough today. There's got to be monster black holes. There have to be <laughs> yes. cannibal black holes. They've got to... So everything is sexed up to the Everything to the is max. a super
0: something. Yeah. Or, yeah.
1: So yeah. solar tornadoes on the sun... It sounds awesome, but it was actually kind of easy to miss this one if you're if you're having to process a lot of space headlines because Mm -hmm. they kind of overstate everything. Even though the the core science is always really amazing when you look at it. And this case in point, you have the the solar tornadoes. Now, you're probably wondering, well, what is why is it important? Like, why does it what does it matter that there are solar tornadoes uh, aside from the cool factor? Well, it really does give us a better understanding of what's going on on the sun. Like one thing to to it's important to realize about the sun is that the, the surface of the sun is the coolest part of the sun.
0: Which seems counterintuitive, right?
1: Right, especially since the atmosphere, the, the weather of the sun, is hotter than the surface. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's hot, and then it gets a little cooler, and it gets progressively hotter again. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and this gives us a little more reason to, to understand it, because in the the atmosphere of the sun, the weather of the, the sun, you have all this intense activity.
0: Yeah, and um, I wanted to point out that Sven... Weidemeyer Bohm, he's an astrophysicist at the University of Oslo, had said, you know, we thought something was up, basically, he said that we observed some unusually hot plasma above the sun's surface, so we knew something was happening there, but we didn't know what. And it turns out that this activity, these solar tornadoes, may contribute to, to that variation in heat. The reason why there is so much heat in this upper atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about a tornado, it's, um, you know, it's, well, There's a a spiraling effect bringing heat up, right? Right. But a solar tornado is unlike tornadoes on Earth, which, of course, are powered by differences in temperature and humidity. Um, The twisters in the sun are a combination of hot, flowing gas and tangled magnetic field lines, ultimately driven by nuclear reactions at the solar core. So at the surface, or the photosphere, cooled plasma sinks toward the interior like water running down the bathtub drain. And this creates vortexes that magnetic field lines are forced to follow. And then the lines stretch upward into the chromosphere where they continue to spiral up.
1: So it's just one big death metal album up there, basically. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's just well, crazy. It's
0: why you. It's why the corona, this upper atmosphere of the sun's atmosphere, mm-hmm. is filled with all of this heat because you have these massive tornadoes of plasma just throwing themselves around. Um, And then as for the 11,000 per day statistic, um, it has been said that there may not be as many in the future because um, we've seen a glut of these huge solar tornadoes because the sun has been ramping up toward maximum activity levels in its current cycle. So. You know, still it's a tremendous amount of activity and in, in one that uh, people weren't necessarily aware of. They suspected of course that something was going on. But you know, I think it recasts this whole idea of The Wizard of Oz. I think someone needs to to write Wizard of, of the Oz uh, based on the Sun.
1: Really. So yeah. so Dorothy would go to the Sun instead.
0: Yes, okay. there's there are a lot of logistics to be worked out there, but uh, imagine the twister that comes through that Kansas. Oh yes,
1: yeah, of course, of course, the solar twister. Yeah, I like it. I like it. All right. All right. Well, uh, now let's turn our attention to the quantum world. Now, of course, quantum things happened in 2012 because um, quantum quantum happens. Quantum happens. It looks great in a headline, um, and so there there continues to be some interesting headway in the field of quantum teleportation. Now. I know what you're, you're at, you're, you're wondering. You're either wondering, well, what is quantum teleportation? Or you're thinking, oh, God, I hope they don't try and and, and explain it. Uh, And and we're, we're not going to go too in in depth on quantum teleportation. Uh, That's really a a subject for another time. But, but we can sort of speed you through the the simple version of it. Um, Because what, what we have here, what we're dealing with essentially is quantum entanglement, in which two subatomic particles, thousands of light years apart even, can instantly respond, to each other's motions, uh, so we've. A, this started off as something that was you know merely theoretical that we figured was possible, and then uh, scientists observed the ph- phenomenon at, a, at, a, at the particle level, and uh, and in 2009 they managed to produce the effect with linked superconductors, and, uh, and and it's an exciting topic because you know it helps us certainly it involves a greater understanding of what's going on in the quantum realm, but also it has. Enormous uh, possible applications uh, for faster-than-light signaling, for uh, sending data, for encrypting data, um, but particularly in the in the area of quantum computing, it's uh, it's pretty big medicine.
0: Yeah, in the past year, a team from China and another in Austria set new records for quantum teleportation using a laser to beam photons through the open air over 60 and 89, excuse me, 60 and 89 miles respectively. Uh, for context, just, you know, just to let you know, the first efforts to do this resulted in sending the particles mere inches. Yeah. So the fact that they're already up to 89 miles is pretty amazing. So the idea is that quantum teleportation Could be used to transmit particles and information from an orbiting satellite, eventually to a uh, relay station on Earth. So this information and the process by which it is transmitted is what you is uh, called quantum encryption. So according to Wired.com's article, The Race to Bring Quantum Teleportation to Your World, quote, if developed, quantum teleportation satellites could allow spies to pass large amounts of information back and forth or create unhackable codes. Should we ever build quantum computers, uh, they would need quantum teleporters in order to be networked together in a quantum version of the Internet. This is very cool stuff. Yes. You know, just from a sci-fi perspective, you can imagine the implications of a quantum infrastructure in our world.
1: Yes. To say nothing of all the scenarios in which Scott Bakula might wear a dress. Uh, But um.
0: So that's sort of the 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 pie-in-the-sky idea. And if you think that's too pie-in-the-sky, though, just consider this. China plans to launch a satellite with a quantum teleportation experiment payload in 2016. Uh, with a quantum communications project being estimated to cost 50 to $100 million. Okay, so China obviously thinks that this is an important technology. Uh, Europe, um, uh, Jap- uh, Japan, and Canada are also, their space agencies are hoping to fund their own quantum teleportation satellite projects in the coming years. So the U.S. is a bit behind in this, and some of this has to do with bureaucratic shuffling between DARPA and IOPA, um, but it's interesting because it's definitely a race to get as advanced in this technology as possible.
1: Yeah. If you think back to the episode we did on um, an interstellar inter- Internet, the idea mm-hmm. of an interplanetary Internet, uh, because as we, as we continue to expand out into the cosmos, if we, you know, as, if we, if we show up on other worlds, we're going to have to deal with communication. And we're going to face the reality that we're dealing with such distances that, that instantaneous communication just isn't possible. So you end up with, with ever growing lag times and it's more of a return to an age of instead of, you know, instantly connecting with uh, a loved one or, or, or just employers or mission team members, you would have to send off missives into the void and then wait for one to return and, you know, hope that nothing went wrong. One of the big exciting things here is the possible, possibility of instantaneous communication between planets by use of this quantum teleportation. Uh, and it's, because we're talking about data being reproduced in one place through quantum entanglement.
0: No, it's it's very interesting, and I particularly the, the spy part, of course, just kind of yeah. makes me uh, sit up a little bit taller and take notice. And there was a an interesting uh, analogy of this of how this might happen with quantum teleportation to send this controllable signal, say, to a satellite. And I'm going to take a stab at it. Aim okay. for it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. This requires three subatomic particles, say photons in this case. Okay. Two of the photons are entangled with one another, and the third contains the bit of information you want to send. Okay. Okay. So just know that the subatomic particles, let's say they're... A vertical orientation. Okay. Okay. And once you test that and you figure out that these, the two that are entangled are vertical, you know the other one's uh, vertical no matter where it is in conjunction to the other one.
1: Okay. So these are like paired uh, decoder rings.
0: Yes. So you take one
1: and I take one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. And then there's that third bit, right, that has the information. So it says for a simple example of how this works, let's say you place one photon from the entangled pair in Los Angeles and the other in New York. Okay. In Los Angeles, a scientist measures one of the entangled photons and the third particle at the same time. She doesn't find out their exact properties, but just their relative ones, if they are the same or opposite of one another, for instance, and the particles get destroyed during this measurement. So the scientist has measured figures out, let's say it's horizontal. Let's say that she discovers that the particles are opposites, meaning that the the one that is entangled, okay, the one of the pair, is opposite from the third particle, that bit of information. They're opposite from each other. And she relays this information to her New York colleague. He then measures this entangled photon and knows that the opposite of that measurement is the bit of information he was meant to receive.
1: Yeah, there you go. Clear as, clear. <laughs> <laughs> clear as, uh, as mud right there. Um, it, it makes me... We, we ran across a number of different, quote-unquote, simplified explanations mm-hmm. for this stuff when we were looking at it. Like, there's one that involves, like, a secret... Like police investigation involving detectives Romulus and Remus. Uh, and Alice. And Alice. It, it gets very complex, even when you're trying to do a very simple explanation. And, and a, a lot of it, kept, it kept making me think of, uh, of the movie Labyrinth, in which uh, uh, Sarah encounters the two doors with the with the, the Muppety creatures behind them, yeah, where one of them says that, well, they both inform her that one of them always tells the truth and one of them always lies. And then one Tells her, you know, what the other one would say, and you have to try and work out in your mind what that answer means and which door she should take based on that answer, and it, it's really a mind warp.
0: Well, the the problem with the Romulus and Remus example that we did not uh, talk about for a good reason is because it also brings cultural junk into the conversation that's yeah. not relevant to it, right? Because Romulus and Remus is an entirely different thing. Yeah, all Something they wanted in this wolf analogy were twins. Is in yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Um. So, but you, the, they got
1: to attach their characters. They had to name them. And suddenly, they were, were invested in them, and we're just trying to understand quantum. All you potential.
0: want to know is this entangled pair. How are they behaving, and what does their behavior tell us about this third particle? Right. Yeah.
1: Don't try and distract us by telling a good story. Right. Right. Good stuff.
0: Um. But it, it's it's again, this is a this cryptography, right? This this key that is inserted to give you a bit of information, and this essentially is what these entangled pairs are doing.
1: Real quick, just a. To, to mention another story that we discussed briefly but we ended up not including there was a really cool um, article about uh, dissonant music and uh what happens when animals listen to it or more importantly what just what happens when people listen to it and uh this is a ucla uh, team that looked into this and they found that uh, that dis- distorted and jarring music is re- is so evocative because uh, the mechanisms are closely related to distress calls in animals. Hmm. So the idea here is that everyone, like, you know, perks up at Woodstock and listens to Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem because it's jarring and there's distortion and, um, it, you know, it, it calls out to our, our deeper animal selves. Uh, so it, I, I found that, found that interesting. And they were also, they also did some studies in like 2010 where they were looking at, uh, at uh, classic movies in uh, various genres including horror and looking at uh, at the soundtracks and how they differed and the kind of emotions they evoked and uh, and they did see that like horror films tended to re- re- uh, to uh, use more screaming uh, females and distorted vocals mm-hmm. uh, distorted sounds in their soundtracks um so anyway, I just found it's like I said. There's not a lot of meat really there to chew on, but it's interesting to think about that in terms of of music that we find uh, pleasing. They, they did a study and and, uh, and everything where like you know subjects were rating uh, music that they listened to uh, on a negative and positive scale. They were listening to stuff that was distorted and stuff that was more uh, you know serene and uh, had more melody to it. Uh, and it, but it did make me think about music that combines both. Because there's certainly there's straight up noise music you can listen to, straight up you know just extreme electronic distortion and stuff that sounds, uh, in, in my wife's words, like uh, someone throwing a xylophone down a set of stairs. <laughs> and then you have you know more stuff that's all the way on the on the serene level. But then you have uh, music that sort of incorporates both, like like some of the groups uh, that I really like uh, that that toy with the nose the the nose the noise uh, uh, section here, like like Autecker, they they use a certain amount of, uh, of serene and, uh, sounds and a certain amount of melody, but then also a lot of, uh, you know, unpredictable um, uh, distorted noise as well. Mm-hmm. And it sort of comes together in this sort of interesting place that, that makes you think, well, it's, it's touching base with, uh, you know, the part of my mind that wants, you know, calmness and serenity, but also in this this animal part of my mind that is responding to something that might be the sound of an animal dying.
0: Yeah, it's stimulating, yeah. right? So. It's interesting to have both of those. Um, I also wanted to mention, and I don't have the the information right in front of me, so this is off the top of my head. I believe it was um, a chimp in Germany, a a zoo in Germany. Have you heard about this chimp? No. Um, That (laughs) was remarkable for a couple of things, but uh, mainly because he would take rocks, put them nearby him, and then sit there and wait for... Uh, zoo visitors to come by and would be act very relaxed. and then just when when the um the zoo visitor sort of didn't realize or was distracted by something would launch an attack with those rocks. And I thought it was fascinating because not only does it show premeditated behavior, which we know exists in animals, particularly in chimps, but it shows this ability for these chimps to actually enter into the realm of acting, yeah in in order to pull off this subterfuge against these zoo visitors. And uh, the video on it is fascinating. I thought that was an interesting bit of animal behavior from this year.
1: All right. Well, there you go. Just some overlooked, uh, potentially overlooked but really cool bits of science uh, from 2012 uh, that we wanted to to clean up there and uh, present to you. So um, let's call over the robot for a little listener mail. Before I read some of these, I do want to point out real quick. uh, In a previous episode, I mentioned pugs. The breed of dog, Mm -hmm. and I talked about how useless they were, Uh, you know, because largely you encounter a pug, and the pug is just this slightly, you know, this kind of poorly put-together dog that has trouble with with heat and too much exercise, and is ultimately just a lap creature. Uh, Or at least that's the way I used to think about it. But just yesterday, I was on MARTA, Atlanta's public uh, transportation system, I saw a young lady in a wheelchair, and she had a helper animal that was a pug. So
0: let so recast your opinion. Yeah,
1: I have to take back some of what I thought about pugs because here's a pug, and he's—I think it was a she actually—but there was that pug, and she was doing her job, representing calmly there by the by the wheelchair as a train roared by. So, how
0: did you know she was a she?
1: Well, I mean. I could sort. Of, she was slim, so you could sort of tell what was going on under there. Okay, you know? I didn't it, know
0: if like you picked the dog up and turned
1: <laughs> her over. Yeah, I, I rolled her. Alpha rolled the the dog. No, it's always a no, no. Don't yeah. alpha roll a, a helper animal,
0: especially on public transportation.
1: Exactly. All right. Well, um, here's a little bit of listener mail from our listener Brad. Brad writes in and says, "Hey, you guys are awesome. I am at a party right now, and that's I think this first time anyone's written this from a party that they've mentioned it, but." um he says, I am at a party right now and was just plugging your Biology of Gremlins episode. The crowd here were so excited, uh, we got to pondering the biology of zombies. Hint, you need to do an episode on the biology of zombies. That's all I'm going to say, Brad. Hmm. I don't know what we'll to think about that one. There's, p- there's potential there. I know there are some... Uh, I mean, it ultimately comes down to are there real-world biological analogs? Because that was the fun of the gremlins, was taking something that... Seems wacky and stupid and totally just made up without any real regard for the natural world and pairing it with things in the natural world that are just as amazing. Um, and I think there are some parallels with zombies. We'd have, we'd have to explore. Speaking
0: of, have you seen the trailer for the zombies love story movie that's coming out?
1: No. Do tell. Is it, does it look good?
0: Yeah. Somehow they, well, I don't know. It looks kind of hokey too because somehow the zombies seem to heal themselves through the power of love. Oh. if I was actually paying attention to this trailer um, in a meaningful way. But okay. cool. it might be interesting. All right,
1: we'll look out for that one. Uh, we also received a number of cool uh, comments from um, people who listened to our teen angst episode. We were talking about the uh, the science of teen angst. Well, what's going on with a teenager's brain? Why why do teenagers seem so different? And why, as teenagers, do we feel ultimately so different about the world and about our social, uh, life than, uh, than we did when we were younger. And then we do when we get older. Uh, so we heard from a number of people. Uh, here's one from listener Jordan. Jordan writes in and says, Hey there, just finished listening to your podcast on teenage angst. Just wanted to let you know that being a teenager myself, I have experienced some of these tricks the mind plays, but most of the time I can overcome the brain's way of tricking me. Like when one of my friends desired, uh, that he no longer be my friend. I myself didn't care, but I uh, started having bad dreams about this non-friend of mine, and I would wake up and I would think to myself, I don't really care, care. Why is this person, why is this so important to me? Uh, thanks for explaining this to me. Uh, keep up the great podcasting work. Regards, Jordan. We heard from Drake. Drake wrote in and says, Hello, I just listened to your teenage, uh, teenager podcast and was interested in a change of conscious. Uh, I was absorbed in all of the facts that you guys uh, stated because in a few months, I too will know what it uh, what it's like to be a teenager. I used to think that uh, taking risk and rebellion were just things that teens did to fit in or to look cool, but now I know that there's some science behind it. Besides, I never really knew how to fit in anyway. Uh, keep up the great work, and I'm happy you got this message. Uh, and that's from Drake from Nevada. So uh, we received a number of other comments, and it's uh, I wish we could read them all. Uh, a lot of just... Cool moments where people either were reevaluating the teenagers they were, or took a you know close look at the teenagers they were becoming.
0: I also wanted to mention we got an email from Isabel and she took us to task for not exploring teens who exercise great amounts of self control, because she said that she believes that um, there are a good subsection here of teenagers who are honest and who um, who can kind of control their states of rebellion and so on and so forth. And I thought, you know, she makes a really interesting point. And that might make for a good podcast in the future here, talking about self-control and teenagers and why some teenagers are successful at that. Um, Yeah,
1: like ultimately we could do like a how-to guide for for teenagers. The the Teenage Brain Owner's Guide. Yeah, like Like, what, you know,
0: is it higher functioning? Uh, Why are some teenagers more mature than others? Because I certainly thought of examples of teenagers I know in my life who are... um, who who do seem very responsible and have a good amount of self control. So I thought she's got a point there. Uh, perhaps something we can pursue here in the future.
1: Yeah, well, I was talking about this uh, episode with with my wife, and she brought up too that it's like it's kind of a little disturbing to think um, about how the the range it, in which one has the teenage brain. You know, it can it can hit pretty early, and then it can it can also hit kind of late and last up until you know basically the mid twenties. And at that point, like we we we're already sitting sending. Uh, these uh, individuals to uh, to college. We're already sending these individuals to war. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- they're they're voting. I mean, there are all these th- these things that are happening, and uh, and but they're still you know potentially in this uh, this state of development. So
0: yeah. Well, we also um, got an email. Just thinking about that, the different states and experiences that teenagers are going through. We got an email from um, a woman named Mikela who is 23 years now, uh, but she became pregnant at the age of 18, and she sends us this really insightful, interesting uh, email about how that experience may have changed her brain as a teenager and how she looks at her sister and her sister's behavior in stark contrast to her own. So that was um, a very interesting email that we don't have time to read, but uh, thank you, Michaela, for sending it.
1: Yeah, yeah, we appreciate all of the uh, email feedback uh, that you guys send in uh, and also the comments on Facebook and, uh, and Twitter. Uh, we don't we don't necessarily have time to respond to all of it, but just bear in mind we do we do read it we, we do check it out. And if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are stuff to blow your mind on both of those. You can also find us on Twitter, where we go by the handle Blow the Mind.
0: And you can also send us a line at Blow at discovery